happened. And you look around the world at historical atrocities, current atrocities, there is always an element of identity erasure. I'm Alex Tatt, and you're listening to Abroad, a lifestyle and culture podcast for those who choose a life abroad or for those curious about the international life. Today, we are joined by Daniel Wickner, a former colleague, soccer teammate, and good friend from our time together in Korea. Dan is an elementary school educator, coach, and writer, and is currently based in Hong Kong. We talk about his transition from engineering to education, moving from Maryland to other parts of the world, and how that helped pave the way for his identity formation and transformation journey. Also, we explore Dan's ideas on being an identity expert and how looking at issues through the lens of identity can help make gains with student growth and in the fight for social justice. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's been a while since I've last seen you and spoken to you. Uh, It's nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, man. Well, first, let's start off by... um, Introducing yourself to the audience, can you let us know who you are, what you do, where you come from? Um, so my name is Dan Wickner. I am a elementary school teacher currently in Hong Kong. Before this, I lived in Korea, Jeju Island, and before that, I lived in Madrid, Spain, and Tokyo, Japan. But I was born and raised in Bethesda, Maryland, in the U.S. What was your educational background? Because from my experience with you, my, my years of working and, and hanging out with you and playing soccer with you out on the field, that education was not your first interest, your first foray into your career. You you were studying something else at the time that kind of took you abroad. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of haven't had an identity crisis of sorts. Um, and uh, I was originally an electrical engineering major and I finished my undergrad and then I went to grad school and I chose to go to Japan for grad school in computer science and robotics, Mm. Um, sort of continuing that track. But I sort of found myself slowly moving away from the technical side of things and moving more towards cognitive cytology, more towards human behavior. And at a certain point, I realized, why why am I not actually working with human beings? Why am I working with robots? Why am I working with machines? Uh, when ultimately what truly motivated me and fascinated me was was humans, was people. And so I ultimately decided to stop that engineering path. And that's when I moved from Japan to Spain, started to learn Spanish, but then happened upon teaching and especially elementary school teaching, really just by coincidence. And uh, in that sense, I've never looked back and I'm much more motivated by my current job uh, than I ever was as, as an engineer. Was there a, a, a specific moment that really changed your mindset in switching from computer science and engineering to the human side of, you said, cognitive psychology? Yeah. Was there like, was there like a specific event that, that changed the way you or, or impacted you to make that change? Or was it kind of like a gradual re- realization over time? I think it was a gradual demotivation over time, but I think I think there was a moment where I, especially being in Japan and and having being five steps away from my lab, having these humanoid robots that I was working with, it was everything that I thought I kind of wanted to do. It was sort of this mm-hmm. image of the engineer that I wanted to be. 
I couldn't get up in the morning. I couldn't, I couldn't motivate myself to, to get up, read the papers that I needed to read, do the experiments, do the coding that I needed to do. I just couldn't, I, I wasn't, my brain didn't want to go there. I, I was thinking about other things. I wasn't able to go deeply into it. I was thinking more about ethical concerns. I was thinking more about human behavior. I was thinking more about uh, why we do what we do. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the engineering side of things. I wasn't really thinking like an engineer, which it, it just ended up hitting a wall. And I sort of barely made it through my graduate studies and, and ended up, you know, moving away and sort of leaving that behind. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to get up from the U.S. and move to Japan? What was the draw there? I think I think it was. I mean, this this goes back to sort of my background. Um, uh, as as you know, I'm I'm mixed. I my dad is uh, white American of uh, mm-hmm. Russian Jewish descent, and my mom is Korean Japanese. So she's Korean. Her parents are Korean, but she was born and raised in Japan, and so having that sort of uh, fairly complex background um, growing up in the US, I never, I never felt excluded. I never felt invisible, but I never felt completely part of the, the dance. I never really felt completely part of it. And hmm. I think going to university and, and that experience there sort of helped me realize that I don't completely fit in here. And, and, realized that probably nowhere I went would I actually really completely fit in. And so Mm. I decided to try a summer abroad in Japan. And that was just really eye-opening. After having spent my whole childhood sort of rejecting the Asian side of me and really trying to be super duper American, but realizing that, wait a minute, there's a part of me that I've been kind of ignoring. And by going to Japan, that would be an opportunity to kind of uncover that part of myself which I had been ignoring under the pretext of doing it for engineering purposes. But in reality, looking back, it was, it was an identity journey. It was, I could have done an engineering master's anywhere in the world and much more easily in the U S but I chose to go there for that reason. Sure. Now I want to focus on what you said there where you kind of packed away and put to the side your your Japanese identity and kind of not rejected but stepped around your Asian identity. Why why is that? What was your reasoning for not really, I guess, celebrating and acknowledging your Asian culture? I think that I mean where I grew up in the U.S. Uh, Bethesda, Maryland, it's a fairly diverse area. I had classmates who were from different parts of the world, but I think it was always clear to me that. Despite, you know, despite having this diversity, that culturally there was a dominant culture that we all kind of aspired to exemplify, which was sort of this American culture, and that things mm-hmm. that were different than that, that they they, I guess that there was sort of this internal feeling that celebrating that and gravitating towards that would sort of label a foreignness in us, would would indicate that we're not completely American. Hmm. as opposed to American plus. And, and so I sort of got this impression growing up that it was much more common for people who were born in other countries but moved to the U.S., immigrants. It was much more common for them to be, to be ridiculed and labeled and, and, and uh, made fun of for their accent as opposed to commended for being bilingual. 
And so that kind of environment, which wasn't, you know, this radically racist environment, but it had this sort of microaggressions built in, the sort of questions about where are you from, you know, what people looking at my my Japanese lunch in a different way, you know, these, these really small sure. things that just add up over time and send a subtle message that this is who we are as a country. And, and the more you move in this direction, the more you are one of us. Sure. And so these sort of subtle messages that are through interactions, microaggressions, but also media, also, you know, movies and, and leaders that you see and uh, those things add up. And, and so in terms of traumatic experiences that of, of racism, I, I haven't experienced them. What I have experienced is small, tiny things that have added up over time that made me move away from a part of who I am. And I think that sort of the last maybe 10 to 15 years of my life have been spent trying to piece together that which I had cast away and also trying to be a force towards making sure that my students don't cast away those parts of who they are in their development as I did. Mm. Would you consider it a sense of self-protection in that sense? And I ask that coming from my own lens because similar to you, I, I cast away that kind of Asian side to me and um, I'm not mixed with with any sort of, um, I guess, white heritage, but I try to integrate myself into Canadian society and Canadian culture as best as I could and try to reject whatever it was that made me Asian. And for me, that was very much a strategy of self-protection. To what extent was that the case for you? Yeah, I think so too. I think that it's there's self-protection, and I think for me, but there's also a feeling of legitimacy, a feeling of, of inclusion, a feeling of acceptance, and realizing how much of, and, and maybe you can identify with this as well, but how much of my behavior, how much of my mindset, how much of my internalized habits and cultural cues, the way that I look at situations, to me, that's been very exposed since I've been outside of the U.S. and realizing just what, just how American I am. Mm-hmm. I think that those sorts of, I, I guess it's it's just this, um, it was that self-protectiveness, but also this desire to to be one of these people in this country, to be included completely and accepted and never actually completely feeling that way. And maybe it was kind of this greed of wanting that, but at the same time, I, I feel like, all of us Americans deserve that. 100%. And, and you brought up the, the idea of um, being seen as legitimate. And that was very much my feeling for it. I, I remember my parents, my mom specifically, put me in multiple activities outside of academics. So I was, I was taking swimming. I was taking piano. I was taking karate. I was playing hockey. But there are certain things that were seen as more Asian than others, specifically karate and piano. And those were two things that I rejected very early on and kept with swimming uh, and certainly kept with hockey. So for me, it was in order to seem more legitimate, I needed to cast away, like you said, these aspects that could be perceived as Asian. And it's very unfortunate because now that I'm 32, I wish I could play the piano. I wish I, wish I had the self-discipline that you could learn from karate, but that's all part of the past now. And I, and I think that that's like, I think in some ways, that's the experience of being 
multicultural in a dominant culture and not having not having the forces around and I can identify with that the forces around me to help me preserve that and help me feel pride in the many parts of who I am you know and and similarly even though even though I did do a lot of what some might call stereotypical Asian activities such as <laughs> playing violin um, sure I, <laughs> there was there was definitely that part of me as well that wanted to avoid avoid situations where I would be blatantly foreign right I've I've tossed around this idea a little bit with my wife and I, and I wonder what your thoughts are on on this particular idea to what extent is this unique to I guess elementary middle school and also high school students to some extent this experience of microaggressions that feel a little bit not very police well i guess because the idea of like oh kids kids don't really know what they're saying they don't actually mean what they're saying they don't really understand the the background behind it so they're just curious to what extent do you think this might be unique to younger children and then tapers off later on oh i mean i, I first of all i would say that i think it's even more damaging to younger children because younger children might not recognize them as microaggressions. They might recognize them as truth. They might recognize them as themselves, their own identity. I think that the earlier we are in our identity journey, the, the more powerful these experiences are and they can really impact us. And they can really, in ways that we might not even realize later on, we might not even remember the event itself. And, and so as that identity gets formed a little more strongly, maybe as we get to be adults, we get thicker skin or we get Maybe we're able to notice them as microaggressions. We're able to identify certain things and we're able to not take things as personally. But I, I would, I think that microaggressions though, I don't think that they necessarily taper off as you get older. Mm. I, I think that they, they become uh, more subtle, but as, mm -hmm. but we, as older people, we are able to capture that subtlety. We're able to sense that subtlety even more. So it, it almost seems like, the history of racism where racism might be very blatant in, but now it's become more subversive, more systemic, mm. uh, more hidden. But I think that it's, it's, it can be just as hurtful. It can be just as, as powerful. And so I, I don't think that it does. I mean, my opinion is I don't think it tapers off. I just think it becomes less visible to the naked eye. Right. And I would, I, I think I would agree with you there. Certainly there's a level of curiosity that, comes from a lot of external factors that you might not recognize when you see it in a child, but I think it's especially important to intervene, not in a punitive way, but also, but more of a con conversational approach to, to talk to the child about why these comments, obviously you wouldn't use the term microaggressions because they might not understand that depending on their age level, but explaining to them why it's inappropriate. Because like you said, certainly growing up, you and I experienced a lot of microaggressions that um, I know for a fact my a lot of my teachers didn't really intervene or address. And I asked myself, well, why? What, what exactly did they not recognize it themselves or, or, or what is it that prevented them from stepping in and, and saying something that could have helped long term? Yeah, and, and I think kind of like you, I, I reflect on my teachers that I had growing up and I and I use them as a kind of as a mirror for myself and, and sort of a those experiences make me think about what 
what kind of teacher I could have benefited from what what could my teachers have done kind of as you as you mentioned and and what why like you why did they not step in or why did they not sense the need to support but also why did I not feel comfortable going to them what was it about my relationship with them or lack of relationship that made it difficult for me to feel comfortable enough sharing myself with them or with with anybody around me would they have been able to sense that I was going through this and I think that that sort of gets to sort of the direction that I, I want education to go towards, which is where we identity is at the center and where teachers understand that their primary purpose is to look at that identity and to, and to protect that growth and to help that growth fixate on that. Um, and the other things, the other parts of teaching sort of revolve around that and contribute to that. I think that that's not very common. I feel like we as teachers get caught up in all kinds of other stuff, sadly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and certainly you you touched on something that I can't wait to talk to you more about, um, the whole idea of being identity experts and this this direction that you're taking your, your teaching philosophy with. So let's circle back to how you moved into the education realm. You've wrapped up your graduate studies in Japan, and then you made the move to Spain. What was there in Spain for you? What, why did you choose, I think it was, you said Madrid? Yeah, I, I originally moved to Malaga in the south of Spain. And that'll always have a, a place in my heart. But it was, it was literally the first, uh, the reason I moved to Spain was literally because I didn't have a reason to move there. It was the first time in my life where I was doing something that was completely free of expectations, social, parental expectations, academic expectations. It was literally... I'm going to this country because I want to learn this language and we'll see what happens. There was no there was no end point in mind. It wasn't part of this building of the resume of of anything. It was literally just I'm going there and it was there that I really got into languages. It really uh focused on on that and then um in terms of education I I went up to Madrid and I literally walked onto the campus of of uh, the American School of Madrid and I just was walking through the elementary school and I had never considered working in elementary school before. But I, I think that what sort of struck me was, was this, with this idea of all these kids in this school, they were all multicultural like me in the sense that they had, they didn't just have one clear dominant culture in their life. They had several different ones that were revolving around them and they had to balance them all. And that challenge reminded me of the challenge that I had and it sort of made me feel like I wanted these are the these are the people that I wanted to connect with these these students um, in this environment and so that I started I did an assistant teaching job there for three years and that's where I feel like I learned my craft. So Japan had its had its way of forming your identity in terms of reconnecting with your Japanese roots. Spain had a different kind of impact it seemed with the identity forming for you in that it, it helped push you with your language growth and, and get you interested in learning languages. What else did you take away from your transition from the U.S. to Japan to, to Spain? I, th- I think that what differentiated Spain from Japan in my, in my story is that Japan was clearly tracing back my roots. It was tracing back who I am. But Spain was very much creating something new for myself. And I think that that also informed my view about identity, that identity is there's, there's the past element, there's what, we, what precedes us, 
But then there's also this creative element that we have that we can create new parts of our identity. And, and I had no business moving to Spain and learning Spanish and acquiring that culture as one of my own. That wasn't part of my history, but I decided that that was going to be part of my future. Hmm. That, that decision-making process, I think, was very, very important for me. So then my question is, do you think forming your identity necessarily has to connect to something, I don't want to use the word innate, I'm not sure if that's the appropriate word to use, but I guess to your heritage, or can you, as part of your identity forming, can you reach out and look at other parts of the world that are not bonded to you in one way or another through heritage? I think I think the both of them. I mean, I, I, I consider identity to be extremely complex, so complex that mm. it's completely different in every single human. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's so many... I would call them dimensions to to identity that it it things that precede us. It's important for us to uncover what those are. We can't ignore our roots. Um, we also, you know, can't ignore our present circumstances, where we live, what we're doing right now. But then also, there's sort of this aspirational identity, which I think many people move towards either countries or jobs or careers or or uh, communities that that they feel a connection with, that they want a connection with. And I think that all of these elements really play a strong role in the creation of what I believe is a dynamic identity. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. a singular form thing, um, which I think makes it really fascinating. It's a moving target. Right, right. You, earlier you mentioned about looking to your past. I, I want to talk a little bit about your mother. In the past, you and I have talked about her background a little bit. I understand that your mother grew up abroad in some ways, um, and her sense of home has also shifted multiple times. What can you share with me about her journey? And I guess by extension, how has her journey impacted your journey? Oh, very much so. Um, it, yeah, just uh, so my my mother's parents, her mom and dad, um, they were Korean, and they moved from Korea to Japan during the Japanese occupation of Korea. So they're known as Zainichi, which is... Japanese Koreans or Korean Japanese. Um, and it's a community which still exists very much so in Japan, but has historically been very marginalized. And uh, my mother felt a lot of this marginalization growing up. Uh, she was never given Japanese citizenship. She went all the way through her schooling, born all the way until PhD um, in Japan, yet was never really felt accepted by Japan. Yet at the same time, spoke only broken Korean and had never lived in Korea herself. And so she was in some ways almost stateless in in a sense. And so at a certain point after she finished her graduate studies, she moved actually to Canada. She moved to Canada for one year, was in Toronto for one year. And then she moved to uh, Maryland, uh, which is where she met my dad and eventually became an American citizen. And so I think, I think for my mom, she, she mentioned to me that one, one very emotional moment for her was uh, when I went to Japan to study as a graduate student, I was issued a um, alien registration card, which is given to all foreigners on visas in Japan. And Mm. what made her emotional about that was that that was the same alien registration card that she was given, despite being born and raised and schooled in Japan. And it was almost a reminder of, of her experience there. But at the same time, it's so complicated because Japanese is her first language. Japanese culture is her first culture. 
Sure. She, in terms of her mannerisms, in terms of where she is most comfortable communicating. When I went back to Japan with her, she, she just managed, everything was so easy for her. Whereas Hmm. in the United States, even after 30 years, there are some things that still challenge her. But at the same time, realizing that all of my Japanese relatives in Japan, who are all Zainichi, they've all changed their entire names. They've each each family mm. has a different Japanese name, and this Korean past has disappeared. Um, none of my Japanese relatives can speak Korean in sort of formal business situations. They cannot reveal their Korean background, mm. and so I think from an identity standpoint, learning about that learning about how a name, a culture, and family as well need to be cast off in order mm. to completely integrate. What, what do you mean when they can reveal their Korean background? Could you elaborate on that? So just to give you an example, um, mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my cousins, uh, he has a um, fairly successful company. And my mother and he had a friend in common. Uh, my mother goes by her Korean name. And my cousin goes by his Japanese name. And my mother revealed to me that she could not reveal, she could not tell this friend in common that she was related to my cousin because that would expose him as, you know, a zainichi, which would Mm. or could have a detrimental effect on that business relationship. And so these sorts of subtle things, which it's... But there's so many layers to it because there's still a part of me. There's a part of my mother that is Japanese. Yeah, sure. It's interesting that you mentioned about the name part and how that can effectively wash away or cast aside that that cultural background, that heritage that is part of you and and allow you to be integrate into another culture and society. And I know you wrote a, wrote an article uh, on LinkedIn published um, the importance of names. How do you explain that? I, I see the name as the gateway to all other parts of our identity. Mm. And I think, I think it's so simple, but it's so powerful. I and mean, from a name, you can almost infer a lot of other parts. You can infer gender. You can infer culture. You can infer nationality. You can infer age. And so understanding the importance of that, I think, is very key. But mm. then also seeing how casually name is cast aside. Um, I think about the other side of my family, my father's side, tracing back to Russia is practically impossible because, you know, at Ellis Island, 120 years ago, their name was changed from something that was at the time unintelligible for whichever immigration officer was taking down their name. And it was changed to Hmm. our current name, which is almost Germanic sounding, but there's there's very little, there's no history, there's no culture, there's no identity attached to that name. Mm-hmm. And as a result, that side of my family has zero connection to that Russian identity. That is gone. Hmm. Um, every single part of that identity has disappeared as part of the American melting pot. And so I feel like that name is the link. I've had an uncle who's gone back to Russia to try to trace it back. He can't. It's the name. And so recognizing that treasuring those names first, you know, given name and family name and other names in, in terms of how we as teachers and how we as, you know, as educators approach the names of our students, the names of our coworkers, our own names, hmm. that we are sending signals to 
to students about the importance of that name inside their identity and, and sending them a message that that's, that's a valuable marker. It's a valuable gateway. It's a valuable connection to other parts of who they are and to really treasure that or it might be lost. Hmm. What you just said just now really made me connect to my own name, specifically my family name, because Tat is not my original family name. It was changed. Uh, my dad's side of the family, my, my, my dad is a Wong. That's his family name. From the Canton region in China, they were the Wong family. And during the Great Leap Forward and the cult, leading up to the Cultural Revolution, when they emigrated, basically fled, from what I'm told, from my mom anyways, was that there was a name change. Part of that is for self-protection. However, my dad, when I was born, gave me a middle name Wong. And it's interesting because it's it's not a common middle name. It's more of a, a family name or, you know. But he made an effort to put it on government documents that my name would be Alexander Wong Tat. Kind of like signaling a reminder of the past, but also the whole name change is so interesting because part of it's self-protection, but like you said, it could effectively disconnect you from the past and your culture and your heritage for something that's a little bit more understandable or intelligible. And I think that that story, first of all, is, is really popular. I didn't know that about you and, and your middle name as well, but I think that that speaks to the idea that we don't always have control of our identities. And, mm. and when things happen that basically make us choose between self-preservation and who we are, to me, though, that's, that's akin to genocide. I, maybe I'm saying a little bit strongly there, but mm. when, you, when you disconnect people from, who, from the meaning of who they are, from their history through these identity aspects when you steal hmm. them from people or you create an environment in which these people have to make this choice to live as somebody else or to die as who they are hmm. or to, to not survive. Or, it, these societies, structures, events that do this, I feel like are some of the worst things that have happened. And you look around the world at historical atrocities, current atrocities, there is always an element of identity erasure that's happening. There's mm -hmm. always, there is either displacement from um, traditional lands, erasure of name, of language, of custom, of social structure. You know, there's all of these things I link back to identity. And to me, it's very clear how, how horrible these things are because I see them as identity genocide. Right, right. In your article, one of the things I remember reading about was how important it is to recognize, because we work in an international education and oftentimes our students will have a name that is easier to pronounce or more common or familiar to us, like a Jeff or an Andrew. But you mentioned how important it is to recognize their name from their, I guess, their cultural background. And I know from, from working with you in Korea and coaching with you, how often you use their Korean names or other names that were given to them originally. What is the reasoning behind this? Is is there is it intentional or is it just something that um yeah, I guess that's my question. Is it is it intentional on your part when you're referring to them to their given names and not their more anglicized names? I, I consider it to be sort of a a challenge hmm. because I see students 
especially students who are caught between cultures. I see students with a lot of a very little control over their identity journey, over their, their path of who they are. There's a lot of imposition, which you know is part of our history, but I feel like they have little control over how they're going to develop as a person, their identity. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that my what I what I do is I, I try to I try to ask students how they would like to be called. I don't always do this and this is something that I need to work on as well myself. Right. But even in just a very simple question, you are you are giving that student or that person autonomy, control over that aspect of their identity, at least in relation with you. Um, and I think that that's a very powerful thing that we don't always take the time to do. I don't always take the time to do it myself, embarrassingly. And mm. so finding, noticing those things about myself, about when am I making assumptions about kids' identities? When am I assuming that they'll want this when actually they might want this? And really putting the ball into their court and letting them choose and rechoose and control and recontrol how they want to present themselves, how they want to identify. I think that that sends powerful messages, even though it's a simple interaction. So it's definitely aspirational for me. And it's something that I'm trying to work on how I interact with students, but also how I encourage others to as well. One thing I notice in our conversations that we didn't really get to talking about your experience in Korea and how that shaped your identity, because that's very much a part of you through your mother, through yourself. After Spain, I believe you were working towards your teacher certification in Spain. And then you made the move over from Spain to Korea, I believe. Walk me through that transition. What was the decision-making process like? What was going through your mind? How impactful was your time in Korea? Oh, well, my, my time in Korea was the most important time in my life. I applied to every single international school in Korea. I got one job, mm-hmm. which is at the school where we met. Mm-hmm. And I had sort of zeroed in on that country as the next place I wanted to go because I wanted to learn Korean. I wanted to sort of retrace this next step. And, and being in Korea and struggling through learning Korean, uh, meeting my wife and you know, connecting with her and her family, and then reconnecting with um, my mother's family in Korea, and then sort of culminating in um, our wedding, which to me, just thinking back was just amazing. I think you were at a you were at an ultimate tournament at the time, so you couldn't make it. But it wasn't uh, not an ultimate tournament. I, I think I was actually, there was another event that uh, it might have been was in October around then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was actually back in Canada. Oh yeah, okay. I was at, yeah. I was back in Canada in Nova Scotia for um, for one of my good friends' wedding. That's right. um, and it's one of those things I had planned months in advance, and I, I was really bummed that I couldn't make it. But Sarah told me amazing stories and how you wrote a song at your own <laughs> wedding. And like, well, great. I can't match that at my own wedding. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> well, I, I, but I think for me, like you know, besides just the 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 amazing feeling of getting married, um, mm. having relatives from the US, from Korea and from Japan and my new family on my wife's side, they're all together probably for the you know only time, first and only time, like just to sort of have the whole family diaspora come together in one spot was really powerful mm-hmm. um, and really meaningful to me and, my connection with Korean culture obviously goes 
deeper than just my connection through my mom, sure. you know, through, through my wife um, and who's basically taught me the language that's now become, it's sort of grown into a really big part of who I am more so than it would have been if I had just, you know, lived there and for a few years and then moved on. So uh, that, that to me, like, you know, even though we're in Hong Kong now, hmm. Korea feels like home in many ways. We've been talking a lot about identity, identity shaping, forming, changing. We're going to get more into that in part two. But for now, I want to take a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode of Abroad, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button and tune in to new episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you're currently listening to this on. If you currently live abroad and would like to tell your story on the show, or you know someone living abroad who has a great story and might want to share, please reach out by email, alextat at gmail.com, or Instagram DM at thisisalextat. I would love to collaborate. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to part two of the show. Dan, I want to start part two by talking to you about your writing. I've noticed that you've been quite active with your writing recently, and you've been publishing these articles to to LinkedIn. So what are what are you writing about? Share with us what you have in your mind there. So um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I am sort of fixated, focusing on identity, and I'm, I'm really trying to center identity as well, I, the core of what we do as educators. And I'm of the belief that what we do as educators is, even if we don't recognize it, we are forming and, and contributing to the identity of our students. Whether or not we recognize it is a different question and whether or not we leverage the influence that we have in order to really support them is a different question. So a lot of the writing that I'm doing is trying to create some frameworks for myself and for other educators to view identity, the different parts of identity in our students, and also how to view education and school in general through what I call an identity lens, how Mm -hmm. we can see a lot of the decisions and structures and actions that we take as teachers, how those things really do affect, sometimes in very positive ways, sometimes in negative ways, uh, the identity development of our students. But just recognizing that and seeing it for what it is and then on top of that, this idea of being an identity expert. And I think that that sort of came from uh, sort of seeing so many experts flying around the education world. You have literacy expert, technology experts, mm. um, you have all kinds of experts. But in terms of what teachers do and the core, what I believe the core of what we do is about identity. And something that I've noticed from the best teachers that I've had and and the best teachers that I've worked with is that they, they all in some way or another, are really helping this identity development in many different ways through their choices inside the classroom, how they build relationship with students, how they um, intervene when necessary, and how they present themselves, how they share themselves Hmm. and, and their authenticity. And so, but on the flip side, I've also seen a lot of poor educational decisions that are poor specifically because they are identity denying or they're identity damaging or they stunt identity development. They're not just Mm -hmm. poor practices because they're poor practices. They're poor because of their damage to identity development. Mm 
and trying to create this framework to help us all focus on that as we educate around that. So this term of uh, this term identity experts, is this something that you have been calling it or is there um, a body of work that has put out this idea? There, there might be. Mm-hmm. It's, I sort of came up with it, but as I'm discovering, there's a, there's a lot of identity research that has been done, less identity research with education and even less mm. so with international schools. And there is some work on identity being a factor in teachers' effectiveness, but it's mostly based on studies from inside the U.S. Um, and less so in international contexts. Um, and that's one, I mean, I think it's important wherever you go and wherever you teach, but I think it's especially important in international schools where you have students with very, very complex, multicultural, multilayered identities. And for the most part, staff that is monocultural uh, from sure. Anglophone countries. And so trying to help give some sort of language or terminology that can be used to help describe educators who are able to understand, empathize, access, and support that identity development and, and creating, a, and, and not creating, but recognizing that skill set for mm-hmm. how important it is and valuing that in educators and school leaders. That's sort of what I'm trying to create a framework for. What are some specific things that would make one an, an identity expert, I guess, in the educational setting? What would they be actively doing in your mind? I feel like, you know, we could be here all night, but I would say the core <laughs> is an ability to understand nuance. Mm. And I think that we are naturally reductionist in how we view things. We want simplified boxes. We want things to fit into our schema, but being able to, being able to see clashing cultures and not feel like one has to dominate, being able to see what international students see, which is this constant juggling of different expectations and different roles and code switching to be able to sit in that and not feel and, and that discomfort and, and feel okay. And to, to be able to empathize with students who are going through that on a daily basis um, mm-hmm. and to support them in that journey, obviously smaller practices, like for example, what we talked about with names earlier, very simple steps can signal that you do care about a student's identity. But I feel like it's a process. It's a never ending process, as I'm sure that you, you know, you know, through your, your teaching that through experiences you learn about, you're constantly trying to grow in terms of your understanding of how, how your students think, how they, what their influences are, and seeing that process, and being part of that process constantly and constantly reflecting. I think that that's, a really important element of what I would consider to be an identity expert. And, and what you're suggesting here, not not to burst the bubble, is very challenging. It's very hard to understand nuance and and, and what have you in order to be a, an identity expert. Oh, for sure. And I think that uh, there's, there's tons of challenging, you know, understanding how to teach literacy, understanding hmm. how to teach chemistry. These are all right. skills that are really challenging to learn and to do them well. Right. And I think that I'm sort of just hoping that this can become something recognizable, quantifiable, something that we can see in educators. I can see it in educators that I've worked with. I've, I've, I've seen it in you as an educator as well. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of the conversations that we've had 
have sort of signaled to me that that you are confronting these things on a daily, if not minutely basis. And mm. so I think just helping to create an environment in which that skill set is recognized, it's something that we can all aspire to and we can all aspire mm. to continue to grow in. I still haven't seen that yet. And so that's why I'm trying to, I, I understand that there's a lot of us are very far away from that. And I don't consider myself to be an expert by any means. And I think that we all, but I think that we can, if we're not working towards it, then we're not improving at it. Right. And once we can have some way to quantify, some way to label it, some way to, to put it into words, then I think we would, we'll see some improvement in that regard. And as a result, identity development of our students will improve. What might be the best, maybe not the best, but what might be the, the, a first step for someone to take in order to become more familiar and proficient at understanding identity and thereby starting that journey towards becoming an identity expert? I mean, we're all different points, but I would say self-identity analysis. I almost, hmm. I, I have sort of this idea of like a sort of a cultural inventory that one takes of oneself. Hmm. If you ask someone where they're from, for someone like me and you, that answer can be kind of complex. But I think for a lot of people, that answer is very simple. But it's not. Um, and mm -hmm. taking the time to unpack who we are and to think about our own identity, I feel like people who have multicultural or multifaceted complex identities, we've needed to confront that from a very early age. We've had that identity clash, that identity crisis. But I feel like everyone should go through some kind of identity crisis. And then on the other side of that, in the process of that, be able to understand and empathize with the identity challenges of other people. But if that identity is a very, very sort of unopened box, because that box has always fit wherever it's gone, right. then I think that that makes it really challenging to understand these sort of open flapping boxes that we see in schools. Hmm especially international schools. So I think that sort of self, that self-analysis would be really key. One thing I, I've really liked at the school that I've been working at is um, this this ability to to create a, an identity-inclusive environment physically. And that starts with things like books, having books from readers of different backgrounds, um, having images of people that are clearly from different backgrounds. Um, so for my, for example, my classroom had, I had a lot of books from the previous teacher and from other teachers donating to me that took on different perspectives. Um, the perspective of a, a refugee, someone who's experiencing diaspora. Um, we had an author slash actor. I forget his name. Um, if I remember it, I'll, I'll mention it to you later. But he yeah. he wrote a a middle school novel that's semi autobiographical about his experience growing up as a Hispanic child. So, for me, I feel like it, the first step is to encourage reading from these different backgrounds. I know for me, and it's easier said than done because for me, I'm only starting to read from writers of different backgrounds now, probably within the last two years. Talking to one of our former colleagues, John Plakaitis, he mentioned how he would like to read more from 
authors of different backgrounds, of different genders. And that's what sparked me to do it. And I didn't realize how powerful it was until more recently. So I'm just trying to figure out, I guess I'm just spitballing. How do we encourage that? Because I think if it's impactful for me, it's got to be powerful for at least one or two other people out there. I think that that, like what you said at the end, that that hits on it, you know, that that identity development and supporting identities of students is not about having every single lesson connect with every single child and every single book. It's about Mm. trying to make sure that somewhere in a child's educational experience, that there's some point where someone or something or even a book character truly identifies with them and, and truly connects with them hopefully multiple points along their educational experience. And I think that the more sort of diverse darts that you throw at the dartboard, the the more chance there is that each kid will have that kind of identity affirming experience. And, and I feel like that's something that we all, we all want for, we all wish that we had and, Mm. or at least I wish that I I can speak for everybody, but, and that we want for our kids, especially kids, with complex background. Mm-hmm. And, and what you said about literature, I feel like literature is so key because a literature writing is, is, the, is the most powerful form of self-expression and of shared experience and of identity. And so mm-hmm. to be able to transmit and to encourage our students as well to transmit through their writing, their identity, and to have this cycle of identity sharing with literature and to have us as a teacher alongside sharing, helping them unpack that context I think is very key. And I'm trying to do the same thing as you, but I find myself still having trouble breaking out of breaking out of canonical mindsets and pedagogy. And so it's, it's a process for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think back to our time, both of our times in Korea and one of the biggest challenges was getting students to stick to one code, speak English. I don't know how you felt about it, but personally, I, w- I was a little bit troubled by that. Um, this persistent push. I, I understand that they- they're paying top dollar for an English curriculum, but to what extent is that harming their identity? Yeah, yeah There's so much to unpack there. I, I think that, that <laughs> that's that's like my anthem is like, there's so much to unpack there because I feel like in every one of these situations, there is so much going on. And I think that that's where an educator like you, you would see that how complex this is and how many different forces are at play and that there's no just sort of simple black and white answer. Whereas somebody who doesn't have that kind of identity expertise sees it very black and white. They say, Oh, this is an American school. We speak English. The parents are asking for us to teach English. So we're going to, we're going to make the students teaching or speak English all the time, but not recognizing the nuance in the situation and thinking back on their own privilege of growing up in a place where they didn't have to code switch on a daily minutely basis, that they didn't have to step outside of their own culture in order to be schooled. That seeing that depth, seeing that nuance, that's a skill. And Hmm. unfortunately, I think that this is sort of a, social justice angle as well, that that people who have power in the international world, I feel like for the most part, do not have that nuanced view. And that's another thing that I'm looking to influence 
um, in terms of how how we approach these complex questions um, and without black and white solutions as we experience. Right. It, I only bring this up because you're talking about identity experts and and I think we both agree that it's it's so hard to to become knowledgeable in this and become proficient in this. One of the things that really changed the way I approach these international schools where you have students of different backgrounds, but you're all you're trying to get them all to be on one single language so that everyone can understand, you know, the the connecting language. And I understand like the respect behind it because you're trying to include everyone. But the one thing that changed me was being at a, at American International School in Vietnam. There is predominantly Vietnamese students paying top dollar for for an English only education, but of course, they were speaking in their native tongue. They were speaking in Vietnamese easily half of the time. Um, and a lot of teachers would mention how, like, oh, I don't know what they're saying. They could be saying anything, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and for me, I didn't reveal to the students that I could understand and speak and read and write Vietnamese. But listening to the students, it's that was what changed me. Hearing them talk about how they were going to approach their work, hearing them explain work to other students, that code switching back and forth using Vietnamese and English which we see students in at our old school do quite a bit in Korean and English. That was so powerful and so cool to see, to, to marry multiple cultures, multiple identities together to learn. Yeah. And make meaning, right. That, that they right. were, they were constructing something that was new in that space in between the two languages that I was, it's amazing to see, but I think that our lens, unfortunately, uh, sort of our, our, Anglophone lens, we see that as imperfect English, as opposed to, as you mm -hmm. describe, a sort of magnificent marriage of two languages and two proficiencies, which they can code switch back and forth. Mm. I, I'm curious for you, you know, having worked in several different international schools, did you, how did you see different institutions view that same problem or that same, not problem, I guess, that same issue? The common problem, I guess I could use the word problem, is that I feel a lot of teachers enforce this this idea of using English only largely because they are afraid. It might not be the main singular reason, but it is a very large, powerful reason. And there are other you know, factors too, like international schools, one of the main deliverables is English curriculum and and helping teach uh, students of different backgrounds become more proficient in English on top of whatever native language that they possess. Um, but for the teachers coming from South Africa, Australia, Britain, Canada, US, a lot of it or a powerful part of it comes from being afraid of what the students are saying and you not knowing. And you know, it's it's fear of the unknown. It, it it manifests itself in different ways. And in the educational realm, I think it, um, it can be very harmful for that identity forming. I think harmful to, to learning too, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I mean, you could say that from what, you know, what, that it, it indicates a lack of trust. It's, it's almost yeah. like the cultural gap is manifested as a lack of trust as opposed to a difference in culture. And there's this implicit 
distrust of that which is different that is imbued into that approach, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's circle back to the idea of being identity experts. In your writing, you you did name sp- three specific teachers who have undoubtedly shaped you. Um, you mentioned you named Miss Stern, uh, Miss Van Duzer, and Miss Geckos. Collectively, uh, the common theme is, or at least the common theme that I sense from all three of them is that they encourage you to connect and celebrate your your cultural background and, and heritage. Can you elaborate a little bit more on these three teachers and the relationship and experiences that you had with them? Yeah, I mean, I feel like what ties them all together for me was that I felt seen. Hmm. Yeah, just feeling seen for who I was. And whether or not that was a massive influence on me, just just being recognized for who I was um, and and who I viewed myself as. I think it was it was just a very intuitive ability that all of them had. And I think that they also the way that they approached teaching in different ways helped me access a part of who I am that I didn't necessarily know existed. I think that that's just kind of the sort of teacher that I want to be. Uh, for my students mm-hmm. is somebody who who maybe perhaps is able to see them for who they are a little bit more deeply, hopefully, mm-hmm. than they've been seen in the past um, and and help them to access parts of who they are and parts of who they want to be and as opposed to sort of put them into whatever box they've already been there what they arrived in. I feel like that's really what ties those three teachers together. It was only years after, you know, it's only, it's decades after that I realized how important they were in that moment. It was just mm-hmm. like, Oh, I, that was a good teacher. <laughs> so, and, and I'm curious, you know, if you've, if you've had teachers who had a similar impact on you, um, why? In terms of teachers having an impact on my identity, I can't think of any off the bat, I guess. Um, there's, there's one teacher that was really impactful for me in terms of shaping my teaching philosophy, and it's it's giving students a second chance. But in terms of identity, it's uh, yeah, it's it's weird. Now that I, now that you asked me that question, I, I can't think of any teacher that that really challenged me to to think about my own identity or my culture or heritage. There's so much of what I learned was very, for lack of a better word, very white studying literature, history, everything came through a very homogenous lens, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, just being raised on F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, British writers, American contemporary writers, but no one really changed, no one really introduced diverse thinking in terms of identity and culture. It's really unfortunate. And, and maybe if I did a little bit more deep reflection there was something there that was a little more subtle that i didn't quite pick up um but right now i can't think of any (laughs) i mean and and that's in talking with other friends and colleagues that's a similar experience especially colleagues and teachers of color that Mm. you you know feeling like going through an entire education without having you know somebody really take a moment to to help you work through these things. And I think mm-hmm. that's depressing. And, and But at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of work that we can do 
to help move that. And that's, I mean, the current, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think is, is definitely raising a lot of questions about curriculum, about anti-racism inside mm-hmm. curriculum. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of things that we've talked about are part of that. And I have a concern that there's going to be sort of explicit anti-racist teaching from teachers who don't have a solid footing in identity. Mm. And it'll sort of just become another checklist of items as opposed to sort of the real deep work of getting to know who we are and who other people are, which I feel like is the foundation. Right. Like you want to, you're so excited. And I think it's it's a great point to be made that it, you're so excited to to change curriculum for the better, I think, when, yeah. when it comes to introducing or reinforcing anti-racist teaching. But you're right. What the, the concern is that there are going to be people who might not be familiar or comfortable or not educated enough and trained well enough to, to, deliver, to, to deliver this this initiative. Thinking about the 1617 Project that the New York Times developed, which is a great podcast, by the way. I started listening to it. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, I think you'd really enjoy it. It's great storytelling. But I was so excited to hear that a lot of people wanted to adopt that as um, additional curriculum or replacing old curriculum to teach about the black history and how it shaped America and how America was largely built on black Americans. Of course, there was a senator or governor out there. I think it was the Arkansas senator or governor who said, Basically, no, this is not a good idea. Um, fortunately, a lot of people called them out on it and said, that's ridiculous. But uh, I think I think it's a great initiative. But I worry if we're, we're asking teachers, educators to, to teach this, if they are unfamiliar and not capable of doing so, could it potentially cause more harm? Because students sense when, when teachers are not sold or fully invested in, in some sort of curriculum. So it makes me worry in that regard. Oh, yeah, me too. And I, I think what's your, your reflections on the sort of the, uh, the environment in the U.S. right now. And I think that it's a great point that this is not a one and done. And that's what I think is very frustrating for a lot of people who are pushing for change is that we don't want a quick fix because a quick fix, as we talked about, is not going to lead to true deep understanding and true mm. buy-in of these of these ideas. And so I'm curious about the United States education system. I'm also curious about international education. How much will this become a long-term priority? It, will it even become a short-term priority? But will it stay right. at the top of the list of things that we need to focus on? Is it going to be one of those default things that we go back to and continue to push ourselves forward or is it going to be sort of you know get this diversity consultant get these checklist items out of the way and then back to stuff that we actually care about um we'll see and and these diversity consultants and experts they they aren't cheap (laughs) when you when you look at institutions that are already employing experts in diversity education i guess you could say they the asking, the requirement for them, like the baseline is quite high and it should be, right? They should have a four years undergrad um, and a master's or professional degree or certificate that uh, has made them more knowledgeable 
in order to do so, you can't just show up and, and say, I, I have a history degree and I think I, I'm able to do it. No, there are very there are very specific tactics that people need to employ and they need to be trained on these specific tactics. And so these diversity experts are, are not cheap. So that's another concern is, like you said, is this going to be at the top of the priority list long enough for someone to invest in that because it's not cheap? Um, or is this just cultural zeitgeist and just going to go away. I hope it's not the latter. Unfortunately, history, (laughs) history is a thing and sometimes (laughs) tends to repeat itself. I'm, I'm optimistic, but uh, I think that that's, it it will take a collective effort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's also the concern of, of fatigue too. um, As, we are in this wave of trying to acknowledge different identities and different cultures and how to be anti-racist. Um, hopefully the momentum continues to push forward because people are, people do get tired. Even the best of people get tired and fatigued over time um, or, you know, wary of virtue, signa- virtue signaling. When you consistently push out this message, people are concerned that it might do more harm or seem shallow or fall flat because you're just trying to seem like you're a good person. There's so many different yeah. layers to this and I hope it's moving in the right direction, but fatigue and virtue signaling are two things that concern me when it comes to this issue of diversity and being anti-racist. Yeah. And, and to, to tie that back to identity, I think for white allies, it's also an identity struggle. It's an identity mm. struggle of who am I? I think that that's been a big transition recently has been this transition from non-racist or not racist to anti-racist. And that's an identity mm-hmm. shift. That's, that's a values shift, a mindset shift. And I think that for people to make that transition, it's not, it's not so easy. And to, to really take a moment to look at yourself and the structures that you inhabit and are complicit in that's that is a challenge that is hard work that takes years so like you i'm i'm hopeful that it it does continue that fatigue doesn't set in um Mm -hmm. the idea of justice fatigue is kind of depressing but you're right systems status quo they're powerful Mm -hmm. and some of the the forces and powers that are in power and propping up these institutions that have been enjoying the the privileges and advantages they're not going to they're kind of banking on fatigue you know like you see not to go too off track but you see people still pushing for the cops that essentially murdered Brianna Taylor to be charged and face justice and in my mind, I feel like you're just trying to ride it out and banking that banking on fatigue to set in, to settle in, and they wouldn't have to address this and face retribution for it. Right. I mean, that's what dominant identity groups always have time on their side. Always. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of social justice, I know one of the things that you are passionate about and you try to bring up, in not just in your teaching, but day-to-day life is social justice through identity. How can the journey of identity awareness, formation, transformation help achieve gains in the fight for social social justice? I think that 
an understanding of one's own identity and an understanding of the identity of people around you, I think that once you have that, it becomes really difficult to be unjust towards other people. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the injustice that we see is a lack of understanding, a lack of valuing, a lack of respect of the identity of other people or or a dismissal of the importance of parts of people's identities. Mm. And so I feel like, you know, even just looking at a classroom full of students, that understanding more and more about who they are as a teacher, that helps me avoid identity denying and identity damaging actions and helps me support their identity growth, understanding about who they are. And also that sort of environment empowers them to understand each other and grow into adults who are able to respect and understand, deeply understand and respect the identities of other people and recognize structures that are denying identities to themselves, but also I- denying and damaging the identities and, and restricting and, and excluding the identities of others. Um, mm. But I think that it's the lack of recognition of those barriers, the, the, the blindness to those barriers, which to me is a blindness to identity. So when, when we can't see the barriers, if we can see them, then it becomes natural to want to break them down. But I think that in that, invisibility, that inability to see, I think is what is standing in our way. That makes me think of Michelle Obama's book, uh, Becoming, where she, one of the things she mentions is that it's hard to hate a group of people when you come into close contact and know who they are. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate talking to you. And it's, it's nice to catch up with you again. Yeah, man, it's, it's great to talk. It's been a while since we had a good chat like this. So. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Abroad with Alex Tat. If you've enjoyed listening to the show so far, make sure you hit subscribe and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at thisisalextat to find out all things related to the show and more. Abroad with Alex Tat is a one-person production and there's a lot of hard work that goes into producing each and every episode. If you'd like to show some appreciation, please leave a review. The show benefits immensely from your comments and feedback, so drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't use Apple Podcasts, please reach out by email and write to alextat at gmail.com and let me know what you think. Until next time, ciao.